Hi, this is Mimi and welcome to my podcast, The Lovely Becoming. Um, today's guest is Iris McAlpin, who is an amazing human, um, talks a lot about trauma, is NARM trained, which I'll have you explain because I'm sure you know a lot more than I do. Um, we connected over Instagram as usual and Iris lives in Sacramento. I do for another week. Oh my gosh. Amazing. And just <laughs> had a, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was to say we're moving to San Diego next week. Ooh. Oh, that's so wonderful. And Iris just became a new mom. So we're really excited to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Tell us about yourself. What do you do? What do you love? Yeah. So right now I am a full-time grad student. I went back to grad school to get my marriage and family therapy degree, which has been quite an adventure. And like you said, I'm a new mom. That's so that's all I'm doing right now. Um, but prior to going on maternity leave, I had a practice coaching adults and I work with complex trauma primarily. So mostly helping adults who are still in the process of healing from early childhood and relational trauma. That is so important and wonderful. And all of your posts resonate so much. And I really thought provoking. Um, so I hope that you will follow Iris, who I will link in the show notes. Thank you. Um, starting off, can you give a description for what is CPTSD? Yes. So one definition of CPTSD that I really liked came from a therapist named Claude Kaimit, and he describes it as death by a thousand paper cuts, which I think is a very visceral and also helpful way of conceptualizing it because it's not like PTSD, which typically involves one large event. Sometimes it also like in the case of combat veterans, there might be repeated traumas, but there's typically a very clear beginning and end with that kind of trauma. With complex PTSD, these might be subtle relational experiences that persist throughout our entire childhood. And if you put any one of them in isolation, you might not look at that and say, oh, that was traumatic. But when you add them up, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of times, it can really impact our sense of self and how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to others, and ultimately how we relate to the world. Ooh, I really love that. Um, especially the part about how one of those single sort of events might not feel traumatic, maybe objectively, um, but really that compounding effect is really important. Um, and I'm glad you said that because I know there's a lot of experiences of minimization and um, people feeling like, well, it wasn't that bad or it wasn't really right. traumatic. Ah, uh, yes, this happens so much. And, and I understand why it's like, we have a very strong sort of primal drive to protect our relationship with our caregivers that persists even into adulthood. But the reality is, if it had an impact on you, it had an impact on you. It doesn't matter if somebody else had it worse, because that's something that people say a lot. It's like, oh, I didn't have it that bad. Some people, you know, had, you know, truly horrible parents. And it's like, well, okay, but if, if you were repeatedly being criticized, diminished, neglected, you know, these kinds of experiences that can really impact how you relate to everything in your world. 
especially as a young person, because we are so incredibly dependent on our parents. Absolutely. And that's interesting that you talk about that functional sort of protective drive um, of our caregivers. I appreciate that perspective as well. Yeah. Why, um, kind of speaking a little bit globally, did you choose to go from coaching to therapy? And how has this impacted your work with clients? Such a great question. So just to make a long story short-ish. Um, so the reason I got into coaching is because for whatever reason, I had really bad experiences with therapists growing up and really positive experiences with coaches. And I know people who've had it the other way around. That's just kind of how it worked for me. But I think what was distinct about a coaching relationship for me was that it felt very human. There was like a real connection. They were sharing a little bit about their lives. Whereas with the therapist that I had, they had been trained in a more old school, classical way where I didn't know anything about their lives. And so to me, that felt really scary to open up to someone where I didn't know the first thing about them. And I was expected to kind of, you know, share all of my deepest, darkest secrets. I wasn't about that. <laughs> like that was not going to happen. So I didn't share as much, which meant that therapy wasn't as effective, but I, I got really lucky. I had some coaches that were just so relational. It made me feel so safe. And so that was the direction that I went in. And after a while, you know, I kind of talked my way into a lot of clinical trainings that maybe I shouldn't have been in as a coach, but I started learning a lot about trauma and I met a lot of therapists in the process that were very, very different from a lot of the people that I had worked with and that were bringing a more relational style to therapy that I just hadn't been exposed to. And I just started to feel like, you know, if, if I'm going to be working with trauma, which is ultimately what I'm the most passionate about, I need that training. I want that training to really be able to serve people the best. And there are a lot of therapists out there that end up doing coaching anyway, and maybe I'll be one of them. I haven't hundred percent decided yet, but I just, I don't see any downside to getting as much training as I possibly can. I really appreciate that. Um, and it is true that usually sometimes it's backwards where people have harmful experiences with coaching and then go to therapy. Um, and I, you know, there's some benefits and downsides to both with the structure and the ethical board of therapy, but also kind of releasing that structure and that um, sort of like, I am the expert and I know everything and you need to like, listen to me, which, you know, is interesting for the sake of trauma specifically, because you're sort of removing your agency yet again and exactly relinquishing it to someone else. Yeah. And since you mentioned NARM, that's what I love so much about NARM, which is really a, a therapy model. And I, so just in case people are curious about this, so the sort of precursor to NARM, um, the, the person who created NARM, Lawrence Heller, came from a somatic experiencing background, which is a trauma healing modality, and they allow therapists and non-therapists to participate in the training. My guess is because he came from that lineage when he first started the NARM training, they allowed in some people that weren't therapists. And so I just happened to be one of the very last people that they allowed to do that, which I feel very lucky for. Now you have to be either a licensed therapist or working toward licensure to be able to attend their training. But anyway, what I love about NARM 
is that it doesn't come from this sort of like expert approach. It's very collaborative. Curiosity is the foundation of it. And it's very respectful of what happened to a person that caused them to choose certain strategies for survival that were helpful for them at an early age, but may not be helpful for them as adults. But exploring it from this sort of curious, respectful place allows us to see ourselves from a slightly different view and ultimately cultivate self-compassion. And it's also a very consent-driven model where you know, I went to some therapists that tried to like push me to talk about certain things that I wasn't ready for. And NARM doesn't do that. And that was something that really felt important to me as well and what drew me to it. And it's an acronym, right? Including. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. For the, the neuroaffective relational model. Mm, I love that. There's a lot of good stuff in, in that and kind of thinking about the, the somatic aspects and attachment and, and all that good stuff with trauma. Yeah. Um, recently I've been exploring quiet borderline personality disorder, um, which I'll give a little bit of an intro to from very well mind, great source. Um, and quiet BPD is not recognized as um, a subtype in terms of diagnosis. And I'm reading right from the website. Um, it's a term that refers to people who meet the criteria for a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, but who don't fit the typical profile. So um, borderline personality disorder gets a lot of a bad rap um, and kind of started this conversation. I was writing about it, thinking about it. There's a lot of stigma in the field. Um, it's rooted a lot of times in childhood trauma. It's a personality disorder where there's a lot of mood swings, um, a lot of fear of abandonment and rejection. Some of the symptoms that I'll read off include having unhealthy boundaries, becoming obsessed with a specific person, um, self-isolation or avoidance as a form of self-protection, self-harm is a big one, mood swings, having these patterns of putting people on a pedestal and then being really irritated or mad at them. Um, and as you all can hear, it's pretty broad. You might've heard some of those symptoms and been like, that's me, but like, I don't think I have a personality disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's most interesting to me about borderline personality disorder is that a common association is childhood trauma. And yet it gets so much stigma as providers don't want to work with these people because they're crazy or they're like really unpredictable. Um, what sticks out to you about this diagnosis? Well, I just want to state from the outset, I don't expect everyone to agree with this, but I feel pretty strongly, just my personal opinion that borderline personality disorder is, is more of a, like a group of symptoms under the umbrella of complex PTSD. Mm. And that's actually part of the reason complex PTSD isn't in the DSM yet is because there's so much overlap with other disorders, particularly borderline personality disorder. And so some people have argued that we don't need it because we already have diagnoses that covered that spectrum of symptoms. But to me, I think there's sort of a labeling that happens. Like you said, there's a stigma labeling someone with a personality disorder, which is more about 
you know, saying this person, like their whole personality is disordered. That's a pretty intense thing to say about someone versus this person experienced significant, significant distress in their early world and in their early relationships. And as a result of that, don't have the skills and capacity to regulate their emotions the way somebody who had a, a safer, more secure relational environment might be able to. So to me, that's just like a fundamental difference in the way of thinking about it. And to me, it feels much more compassionate and respectful to think about it as a result of trauma. And I think too, I mean, that doesn't minimize the fact that it can be difficult to work with. But again, if we're sort of thinking of someone in this very labeled pathologizing way, that's going to color our interactions with them and maybe make them feel objectified, which may be very familiar for them in a not so pleasant way. Mm. That's really, really critical. And I'm glad that you said that because the name and the label that we use makes such a huge difference, unfortunately, sometimes. Um, and I think that trauma aspect is really ignored and pushed aside. Um, when we use the label BPD, borderline personality disorder, it kind of puts the onus on the individual of like they're acting out, they're lashing out. Whereas when we have that compassionate trauma aspect, it's like something really big happened to you or some series of events that were really painful happened to you. And it's not about um, just making sure you act more in alignment with society. It's about helping you do this healing work. Um, and I don't want to overstep my, um, expertise or anything, but, um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about this sort of strict DBT approach that people typically take where it's skills oriented. Um, we want to make sure we get symptoms under control versus, um, we briefly talked about, uh, a trauma informed approach and considering how the treatment can look different, even with the labeling. Yeah, well, I think I want to be careful here too, because treating BPD is not my area of specialty. And I think everyone is different and some people really respond well to DBT and, and do beautifully with that. And some people really don't. And so I think just knowing that there are other approaches that might be effective or impactful. I mean, so NARM does or is specifically geared toward working with BPD at the master's level. And so I, I took a year long training on working with this, but because I'm not a clinician and don't have formal supervision, I, I don't treat people with BPD um, just because it, it, it's one where it's just useful to have that additional support. And what I would say about, you know, the differences in treatment, I just think coming from this, this foundation of curiosity and really inquiring into what makes sense about this reaction that you're having right now, or what makes sense about this behavior. If we place this in the historical context of your life, what, is right about this. Like a lot of times we think about these symptoms as like, what, what's wrong? And 
Narm asks a different question. It's like, well, what's, what's smart about this? What's right about this? And that can just open a little bit of space to start thinking about some of these behaviors a little bit differently. And something that's unique to BPD, which, you know, Narm conceptualizes it more on a spectrum that like all of us probably have, you know, some flavor of this somewhere within us, but then, you know, if it's causing a significant distress, then maybe it would be on the more disordered end, but most of us can relate to some of these things like fear of abandonment. But what happens with BPD is they often have parents who are very inconsistent where they may be hurtful and abusive in some situations and really great in other situations, which creates a sort of love hate dynamic, which children don't really have a lot of capacity. like developmentally, they haven't developed the capacity to see a lot of gray. Things are more black and white. And when we experience a lot of trauma, we kind of get stuck in that way of thinking. And so they may have a very love-hate dynamic with their parents. And they also typically had their dependence rewarded and their autonomy punished. So like an easy example might be, you know, if a child is like having fun playing on their own and one of the parents feels insecure and abandoned by the child because their child was having fun without them. When the child comes back, they might say, well, oh, well, you were having so much fun without me. I guess you don't need me anymore. Or they go over to a friend's house and they have so much fun. And then they come home and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, I had the best time. And then the parent says, well, like, why don't you go live there then? You know, it's like when they're threatened by their child's independence. And so that can create a lot of inner turmoil and conflict around being an independent autonomous person. Mm, That's really helpful. And I, I'm thinking now about that parent aspect and how that contributes towards the sort of ups and downs and even that like need for closeness. And then that shutting down of like, I got to cut people off before I get rejected. Um, And I think coming back to that norm approach where it's like, how does this make sense? It's like, you're bidding for connection because we all need that. And you want to feel closeness to someone. But there's also that fear of like, last time I felt close to someone, it was shut off. We've got to protect ourselves. Like that is really smart to make sure you don't get hurt. Yeah, it's so smart because I mean, when you think about how helpless we are, as children, we can't just like pack up our bags and move. <laughs> we're, we're stuck until we're 18 or until, you know, some people become emancipated minors, but for a good chunk of time, we are actually stuck there. And so we have to do what we have to do to manage unmanageable situations. And sometimes that means profoundly disconnecting from ourselves I mean, something that I learned more recently that I thought was fascinating is that people with complex PTSD actually score higher on the dissociative experiences scale than people with PTSD. So things like amnesia, so a lot of people who don't remember their childhood, absorption, which is kind of like just getting absorbed in fantasy, depersonalization and derealization, like feeling like, you know, 
you're sort of on the outside looking in at your life, these kinds of experiences, um, you know, we learn to dissociate, we learn to disconnect from ourselves and our experiences if we're stuck in a really challenging environment for years and years on end. And that can cause problems for us later, but that may have been exactly what we needed to do to get through that. And so maybe we won't go as far as to say as we celebrate that, but we can at least respect and honor that that was an intelligent choice for us. And we didn't necessarily make that choice consciously, but we have this innate wisdom that we utilize to protect ourselves. And I think that's important to acknowledge. Mm, Definitely. It's kind of a radical approach of, again, coming back to like, not what is the pathological problem with what you're doing and like, how can we get it out of you? Of course, there's some validity to wanting to change and make something that's more sustainable for you. Right. And feels more connected, but there's so much beauty and compassion for our behaviors and feeling validated that we didn't do something consciously wrong or bad, especially those little children who are like, if someone wants to get this behavior out of me, I must've done something wrong. It's kind of that punishment underlying all over again. And when we have that different radical compassion, it's like filling that childhood need, of course, again, of I wanted to be seen and I wanted to know that I was okay and that I'm not bad or wrong. I'm just human and I'm doing my best. Yeah, and as you were talking about that, something I feel like might be important to mention here is that for a lot of childhood trauma survivors, self-compassion can feel very threatening at first because having compassion for ourselves in an environment where that wasn't going to go over well, maybe very scary. Maybe we had to have all the compassion for our parents and none for ourselves in order to be able to manage that situation. And so if anyone's listening to this and struggles with self-compassion, again, there might be something really right about that too. Maybe that protected you at a time when you couldn't protect yourself otherwise. And so um, give it time. (laughs) Thank you for bringing that in. I really appreciate how with trauma, um, everything has subtle implications, I think. Um, When we say that something is bad or wrong, that can be really weighty and heavy unintentionally sometimes. And even those interventions were offered, it's really important to be able to feel safe to communicate when that doesn't feel right. Because maybe it's giving us good information about our childhood again and ways that we continue to try to protect ourselves. Yeah, maybe. I love that. Um, we previously talked about how radical it could be if we took on a trauma-informed approach to borderline personality disorder. Um, and we've kind of touched on this, but what are some elements and maybe giving an overview of what even is a trauma-informed approach in relation to other diagnoses? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we have done a a decent job covering some of this groundwork, which is, you know, a trauma-informed perspective looks at an individual in context. So it's not like in a vacuum, you know, this is a bad behavior, this is a problematic symptom. 
it's like, let's look at the ecosystem of your early environment, your current environment. How is what you're doing right now, which may be, you know, historically considered quote unquote maladaptive. What makes sense about that, given what you've been through? Because what's a maladaptive behavior now may have been an incredibly adaptive behavior at a certain point. And I would argue like always was adaptive at some point, otherwise it, we wouldn't have done it. We wouldn't have learned it. We wouldn't have had that reinforced. And so, well, I shouldn't say always, there's no such thing as always, but <laughs> usually we <laughs> say that. Um, so yeah, a trauma-informed approach will, will consider those factors and incorporate that into our sort of working hypothesis of what's happening for our client. Hmm. And you know, it's interesting. I was just thinking that I often or sometimes start to use maladaptive when I don't want to say bad, hmm. um, which now I'm thinking that's another term that maladaptive sort of implies like it wasn't helpful or oriented to the situation, but that's another word where it actually was adaptive. Right. And that's when we kind of have to ask the question of when it's like, is it maladaptive now? Maybe like there are some really, there are some behaviors that really do not turn out well in the present moment, but perhaps, you know, when you were 11 or two months old or however old that would have been helpful in some way, helped you manage or cope or survive. And so, yeah, there's a little bit of nuance to that. Yeah. As always. <laughs> <laughs> and really trusting, I think, again, the what the clients are saying and what the survivors and those experience, experiencing the trauma are saying, because I think there's this tendency to get so caught up in the language um, of what's researched or what's right and to not really lean into, maybe we're not even on the same page sometimes about what you're saying might feel like, well, that's not what I learned or well, that's not quite right. But really asking people like, what do you mean by that? Like you might really be onto something and you can trust your perception, which is really important in trauma healing. Yeah, I agree. What do you think it would look like to take on a trauma-informed approach to borderline personality disorder? Say we didn't, or I guess kind of as we have it now without CPTSD in the diagnostic manual, what would it look like to take on that trauma-informed approach? It's a difficult question to answer because I think it would look different with, with every person. I mean, something that I appreciate about relational approaches is that they're not manualized in the same way. It's not like, okay, step one, we do this, step two, we do this. And there's, there's a lot of utility to those. They're easier to teach. They're scalable. They're easier to study for a variety of reasons. So there's a reason the evidence-based favors a lot of these manualized approaches like DBT or CBT, but then, you know, there's, cost to that as well, because we're sort of putting people through a protocol rather than attuning to who they are as an individual. And a lot of any attachment focused therapy, which is inherently trauma-informed, we're sort of recreating a healthy relational, or maybe not even recreating, maybe we're creating for the first time 
a healthy relational environment. And so for somebody with BPD, you know, that might feel very threatening at first. That might feel very unfamiliar. There may, may be a lot of protest against that because if you've learned that relationships aren't safe, then that's going to show up in a therapeutic relationship too, which is why it can be difficult to treat, not because this person is so problematic, but because they've learned that trusting someone, relying on someone, being close to someone is a trap. And so, you know, our job as therapists or coaches, hopefully, I mean, I believe if, if you're a coach and you don't have supervision, I wouldn't recommend trying to treat someone with borderline personality disorder, but um, just sort of the scope of practice and ethics issue. But, you know, if we're working with that, just remembering that may take some time, may take considerable time, sometimes years for relating to someone and creating that secure attachment, you know, for that to feel safe for them. Mm. That's really good. And it, it kind of reminded me of how the solution is sometimes the very hardest part of the disorder because it directly is linked. And what I kind of mean by that is like with depression, for example, we use behavioral activation. We want you to really get outside and to do things or with anxiety, we want you to go and kind of engage in those these anxiety inducing um, activities. And I think there's a lot of compassion to be had that it's the disorder that makes it hard to do the treatment. So (laughs) with like depression, it's like, okay, yeah, that's the treatment, but that's exactly what the disorder makes hard. And I wonder if we take that perspective into BPD of like, it's the relationship treatment that is like helpful, but also that disorder is what makes it hard to do the relational treatment. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And in the NARM training, they they talk about impossible binds and that is sort of the impossible bind. It's like you need healthy relationships to heal and then engaging in relationship may be the most terrifying possible thing. Mm-hmm. How unfortunate that it can't be something unrelated and easy. <laughs> I know, it's true. That's why going slowly is, is important and building trust over time is important. Yeah, definitely having those trusting examples to go back to. And that can be hard with coaches and therapists when we have, I've been thinking about recently, when we have boundaries, which are important for providers, but also if we can't have that connection that heals outside of sessions, it's like, who do we trust and how do we figure out how to get the support we need when it's really hard to reach out when you have to respect that someone can't always be there for you, but you're trying to heal that people have not been there for you. And again, these providers are there for you, but they also have their own limitations and boundaries as humans. Yeah, it's really true. Compassion fatigue, I think is one of the biggest occupational hazards. Yeah, it's quite a world. <laughs> um. What do you think that, um, or I'm going to backtrack. Oh, um, you don't have to answer this. Um, (laughs) But I've been thinking about this recently that for those of us whose work is very intimate and tied to our own stories, we're often able to offer a deeper perspective that really resonates with others. 
And I found that in my own work with OCD, eating disorders, et cetera, that I have a lot to give because I've experienced it because I know what it's like to be in therapy on the couch or eating the meals that are really hard. Um, and also I'm understanding that that's such an additional amount of labor and it's really vulnerable because not only when I'm sharing these posts and this content, am I giving information, but if there's like a negative comment, it's not just that they're commenting on my writing skills or my education. It's also deeply personal and it could affect me. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious about your relationship to this work in terms of privacy, vulnerability, and honoring that labor. It's such a good question. And it's something I'm working at ongoingly. I would say I have a day-to-day relationship with that. And I'm, I'm pretty careful to not share about things where I feel like it would be really disruptive for me to be getting you know, a lot of critical feedback. I mean, it still happens. <laughs> it still happens all the time. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think I just sort of check in with myself. It's like, okay, am I really settled about this? Like, do I feel like I'm in a really good place with this? And if the answer is yes, then I'll share it. And whatever happens, happens. If it's still a little too tender, or if it's still something where I'm just, you know, not quite on the other side of the hill with it, I might just keep it in my notes and save it for another time when I feel like I'm in a better place to talk about it. Or sometimes I'll even just check in with the state of my nervous system and I'll be like, if people don't respond to this well today, do I really have the energetic and emotional bandwidth to deal with fallout today? And sometimes I miscalculate and, <laughs> you know, it's like, actually, I didn't have a bandwidth for that, turns out. Um, but, you know, being in the practice of asking myself that question, I think, is really helpful. And, and just remembering, you know, we're not robots. We have different capacities one day to the next, especially as a new parent. It's like <laughs> the extent to which I slept the night before is a huge impact on what my bandwidth is. And so, um, yeah, I just think for me, it's an ongoing practice of just checking in. Mm. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, kind of putting all of this together, these are some big topics and I'm finding myself having a lot of imposter syndrome and um, thinking like, man, PPD, CPTSD, those are some big topics. Um, but I also find myself having thoughts of like, well, who is the expert? on trauma (laughs) and why did they get that um and it comes to mind of like well researchers academics and I find that interesting too um following my train of thought of like who we give power to in terms of who has the most knowing and who gets to decide what is trauma how we approach it and what is right um so I'm just curious how you move through this work um, in terms of just like tackling such big topics, but also having so much to offer. Yeah, that's such a, such a rich question. I mean, I'm always wary a little bit of the word expert in general, I guess. (laughs) Like, what do we really know as a species? I'm very skeptical of that generally. Um, I mean, I can just tell you, I, I certainly don't 
think of myself as being an expert. I think of myself as being a student always, even before I was in grad school. It's like, I'm always trying to learn more. And um, I think it's sort of that principle. I'm sure there's like a better you know, saying to capture this, but it's like the people who say they know everything know the least and the people who know the most are the ones who don't feel like they know very much. Um, yeah, so I'm always a little bit wary if somebody says, you know, I'm the expert on X, Y, or Z. Um, but I think it's a good idea to, to be a little bit, maybe skeptical is the wrong word, but to like think critically about, you know, where we're getting our information from. And there might be studies that say a certain thing, but if your own lived experience tells you something else, then that's worth listening to as well. I wouldn't say I completely ignore the empirical data, but listen to, you know, your gut, listen to your intuition, listen to what you know from having walked your path. And so I feel like there's just always this, this balance and that I'm personally trying to tell. It's like, well, what do I know in my heart? What do I know in my gut? And then what does the research say? <laughs> and sometimes those things line up really beautifully, sometimes they don't. And then when they don't, I try to get curious about that and explore that a little bit and see where that leads. Yeah. Thank you I don't so know much. If that I... your question, by the way, but <laughs> it's the best we're going to do for today. <laughs> well, I think it's perfect because this podcast, you know, I think there's a lot of rich questions and content. And part of what I love about it is that we're just engaging in these conversations that really often mix uh, sort of research perspectives and people that I know are really passionate about learning more and gathering information, um, but also are really passionate about what's going on for the individual. Um, so really bridging that is really beautiful and I'm, I'm grateful for that. A fun question. <laughs> yeah. um, what are some of your favorite foods? Oh my gosh, so many. Um, I mean, peanut butter is always my favorite food. Like peanut butter, anything is so good. Um, my favorite pandemic find, like something I'd never, maybe it's existed for years and I just wasn't aware of it, but uh, I started buying frozen sweet potato tots and putting them in my air fryer. Yes. Sweet potato tots are my jam. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely have a sweet tooth, so... Froyo, it's always good. Cookies are always good. Muffins are always good. Love it. Big fan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, love a good bakery. Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, and question I always ask, how are you becoming? Love this question. I mean, right now, I feel like I'm in this total metamorphosis, just being a new mom. Um, I was sharing with you before we started recording, it's like your brain is literally reorganizing itself in pregnancy and early motherhood. And so I really feel that. And I am very aware of it as it's happening. I've been sort of watching it and it's, it's fascinating and it's, it's challenging and it's scary at times and it's joyful and it's beautiful and it's touching and it's all the things, um, being a new mom is such a cool experience and my daughter is just the best um and you know of course I say that but <laughs> um yeah it's been it's been such an interesting experience especially bringing my kind of 
psychology <laughs> lens to it and just noticing how my responses are different and how, you know, my hormones are really modulating my reactions to things <laughs> positively or negatively. And, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's going to be interesting to see how it continues to unfold. I love that. Oh, this was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.